when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Apatel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Aparna Chenapragata. She's the chief product officer at Robinhood. That's the popular stock and crypto trading app. And we've got some news to discuss. Robinhood is launching a new cash card today that allows people to spend money directly out of their Robinhood account and set up various plans to automatically invest by rounding up purchase amounts to the nearest dollar and putting the difference in various investments. Now, Aparna has a fascinating background. She was at Google for a long time, where she ran product teams for search and shopping and served as technical advisor to the CEO. She's actually all over The Verge. We've talked to her a lot about various Google product launches over the years. So first, I wanted to know why she left a big company like Google for a startup, especially one like Robinhood that works in a complicated and heavily regulated space like finance. I also wanted to know about Robinhood itself. Obviously, Robinhood attracted a ton of mainstream attention last year when a subreddit called Wall Street Bets bought up a lot of GameStop stock in an attempt to drive the price up. A lot of people were using Robinhood to do that because it doesn't charge any commission for trades. How does Uprana think about what features to put in the app to balance things like ease of use and engagement for first-time investors against things like the danger of making it too easy for people to lose money on risky trades? After all, the data says that the more often people trade, the more likely they are to lose money. I was curious how Uprana approaches that from a product and design perspective, something she is clearly thinking about. I also wanted to ask how she thinks about Robinhood's core business model and how it relates to users. Those commission-free trades are only free because Robinhood relies on something called payment for order flow. Basically, it places stock orders with larger trading companies who then buy and sell large numbers of stocks at lower rates, and Robinhood gets a payment for all that. Alberna says it's like buying something wholesale versus retail, but it's still controversial, and the usual regulators have made the usual noises about it. What I wanted to know is whether Alberna thinks that products should somehow communicate that underlying business model to users more directly. After all, the platforms that don't communicate their business models well tend to end up in the middle of conspiracy theories. Think Facebook and targeted ads and people thinking Facebook is somehow listening to them. That dynamic is even riskier for a company that's holding your money. So I wanted to push on it a little bit. And of course, I wanted to talk about crypto. Robinhood lets people buy and sell various cryptocurrencies, and the company has said that it wants to be a crypto-first company. I was curious about how Uppernet is thinking about designing a product for that world, where she sees the real promise in crypto and what she thinks is just hype, and whether she thinks Robinhood is part of Web3 or not. I'll tell you, she got a little spicy on that one. This one goes a little long, but I think it's worth the time. Okay, Aparna Chenapragata, the Chief Product Officer of Robinhood. Here we go. Aparna Chenapragata, you're the Chief Product Officer at Robinhood after a long and sterling career at Google, where you are actually all over theverge.com from your time at Google. Indeed. 
one of the favorite parts of my uh, gig was like, especially after Google I.O., post-Google I.O., just going through the hilarious live blog <laughs> on Verge, <laughs> just like with a cup of coffee next day. That was one of the yeah. favorite parts. At this point, I think we do the live vlogs mostly for the executives of the company. Um, I get a lot of that feedback, but it's good. It's a good time. But you're Robinhood now. You've been there almost exactly a year. You joined the company before it was public. You've gone through the now we're a public company process. I have yet to say welcome to Decoder. Welcome to Decoder. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I have a lot of questions. There's a lot of news. I want to talk about crypto. You have a new card that I want to talk about. But it's Decoder, so we're going to start at the beginning. I think a lot of people are familiar with Robinhood as a trading app, right? And it kind of burst into the mainstream consciousness last year with meme stocks and all of that. But the ambition for Robinhood is to be more than just buy and sell stocks, right? How would you describe Robinhood? The thing that got me into the company and just really excited is this bold mission of democratizing finance for all. And that means, I think... A singular, like a key operative word here is access. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, there's a whole bunch of things. I think it starts started with trading, but there's a whole bunch of financial services that are just for the ultra wealthy. And like there are walls all over the place. And I think that the first place that the company started, Robinhood 1.0, has been about like starting with trading and investing and saying, how can you get started with as little as a dollar? How can you get a, you know, own a fraction of a stock that you admire, the company that you believe in? And then go from there. And how can you actually do that in an intuitive, mobile-first way, right? Which wasn't happening before. So I just said you were at Google for a long time. You had many roles at Google. At one point, you were a technical advisor to the CEO at Google. You know, Google is a large company. It's very stable. Robinhood's a startup. What led you to jump from Google to startup world? So I did have a foray into financial services because I was on the board of Capital One. That was my first foray into kind of like bridging these worlds of tech and finance. I think one thing that intrigues me, and I think it's a it's a really big opportunity for core tech product builders to make a difference, is if you think about it, like finance and health are kind of like the most important things that people have. Finance is the fuel, money is the fuel for life. And yet I think that tech and just like this idea of consumer product thinking hasn't really, really like changed finance dramatically. So and I saw Robinhood as like a prime example of what it can do to kind of make people more confident and give access to financial services like trading, like investing. That's one. But the second thing, honestly, is I think like Google's a fantastic place. I cut my teeth in Google search, like worked on many, many different things. But the steel thread running through all of it is this idea of like access, Right. For me, that mission really resonated when Robinhood and the founders talked about it. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> uh, how big is Robinhood now? It's uh, a few thousand people, but the co- there's like a core product and engineering team, which is under a thousand. And there's a lot of like operational team as well. Uh, Three thousand plus people. So it's not like it's not a startup startup yet anymore. Well, when you think of finance, like those are big companies. right? Those are big so- companies. And I think the thing is like. You know, when you think about like what I said, democratizing finance for all, like if you look at kind of like where where the money goes, it's of course kind of like helping people to invest in their future. But then I think like for a lot of people, spending is where like your day to day cash flows, like your your spending is a big part of it. And today, most of the products just like, you know, dig you deeper into the hole. And then there's loans, there's retirement, there's a whole bunch of places where I feel like it's been true. The problem has been cast as a finance problem and not a consumer problem. And those are all opportunities for a consumer tech company like Robinhood to rethink and help. So you said around 3,000 people, less than 1,000 people on the product team. How is the company structured overall? How's Robinhood organized? So because it's at the intersection of finance and tech, we have very clear separate regulatory entities. For the, There's an overall parent company, Robinhood Markets, and you have specific entities that focus on brokerage, specific entities focused on crypto, for example. And then, of course, there are functions that uh, you know, spike across them, like there's GNA, there's finance. But within the product organization, there's really three big areas. One is, of course, this core business, like the Google search of Equalent, right? Like the, the core business is uh, investing and brokerage. Then there is crypto, which is, I think, growing much faster than even in the last few years. 
And then there's ideas around like this one minus investing. What are kind of like emerging products that we're building around? Well, what's the step before investing? Like how do we help people save and spend better? So Robinhood itself, there's a parent company and there's individual companies that do brokerage, crypto, but that's all expressed in a single app, right? So are you saying that depending on what screen of the app you're on, you're interacting with a different company? I think it's more about the regulatory entity, and we're pretty well organized in terms of having the controls in place as a public company. Make sure that their decisions and that there's a clear like risk committees. There's a board that is associated with each of these entities, so that the the committees make those decisions. And yes, you're right. All of it for the customer needs to be expressed in a single app, and that I think, in, interestingly, is that actually one of the things I was going to say is that. That's a departure from probably like a traditional like consumer internet company. Like I think when you go into regulated spaces and like like financial services is one, you do have to make sure that safety and access are are, are both present. And I think that's one of the things that the company is doing a great job now. I just want to drill on that for one more second. So when I click the button to buy and sell stocks on that screen in Robinhood, that's one company mm-hmm. that has the risk and has the regulation. And then I click the tab and I go to buy and sell crypto. I'm now interacting with another company within Robinhood. Yeah. And the reason is that there's very, very str- clear uh, regulatory requirements and boundaries for a brokerage dealer, for in- introducing brokerage de- broker dealer like Robinhood that allows for equities. And then as you know, like I think there's like emerging discussions around regulation with multiple you know, regulatory bodies, right, on crypto. And we want to make sure that the customers are kept safe and, and and there's clarity and transparency on, like, what they're interacting with and what are the kind of the specific contracts, if you will. Yeah. The reason I ask is just you are correct that most companies that have that kind of structure will ship multiple apps. But here you have a product that's just one app that's Robinhood. People think they're dealing with... Robinhood, one single company. It's fascinating to, to see the corporate structure kind of reflect the product design. Yeah. Are yeah. there moments where you're like, oh, there's a feature I can't put in the in the brokerage screen because that's actually the crypto company's remit? Look, this is a muscle group that the, the company has to build and like it's building. What is interesting is I think like we're able to translate and I've been kind of like really impressed with the cross-functional team. Like the legal team is actually very, very clear about, hey, what are customer benefits and where do the regulatory lines lie? And then the product team is as well. So there's a very tight cross-functional team that just looks at, hey, for example, if we want to kind of provide this kind of customer benefit, what kind of disclosures do we need to make so that the customers themselves are not you know, confused about what's happening? At the same time, they get the benefit. Yeah. And does your product team, is that also cross-functional or are you broken up across those different lines of business? We do have both, right? So obviously there are folks who are kind of looking at it, as you said, like the whole overall app performance, for example, right? Like on Android and iOS, et cetera. That somebody has to kind of like look at it across the board, regardless of like specific entities. And that's it at the parent company level. But there are places where you say, this is a crypto dedicated crypto team. This is a dedicated brokerage team that just is looking at specific features that people want. The other thing is, I think the customers are also different in some of these cases. For example, on crypto, I, we have a lot more diverse set of uh, users, right? Both across, like, compared to other platforms, but also over time, a lot more women, a lot more racially diverse uh, in terms of like users and first-time investors in crypto. So this, I think, is the classic decoder question: How do you make decisions? What's your decision-making framework? Decision-making framework. I feel like I need to have like an acronym that's like really catchy. <laughs> Uh, but I don't like spoiler. Alert. Oh yeah, no, this is like thought leader bait. This is influencer bait. I, exactly. I, I feel like every time I ask a question, I'm out on the ledge. But then you know, I don't. You don't. You don't need to sell it. Frankly, like I tell my team and I tell my leads, I think that you're in the business when you're in a like senior operator in a company. The day to day currency is decision making. It's a contact sport, and you do that uh, <laughs> like over years. Um, I do have a framework now that I think about, like kind of the acronym. There's probably I can I can think of it as the five W's, if you will. But like that's kind of how I think about it. So, for example, I think often, much to the annoyance of like the, sometimes the team, I start with the why, 
because they've just framed the problem and they've kind of come in and say, hey, do you want, do you think we should do X or Y? And I'm like, no, 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 step back, pop one layer in the stack. <laughs> Sorry, tech nerd. Uh, uh, no, that's what the show is all about. Go for it. Right. And then and you say, OK, like, why do you need to do this? And the why is nuanced, because I think one of the specific questions I ask is, what game are we playing? Is it a game of inches or is it a game of miles? What I mean by that, Nilay, is like there are problems that are optimization problems, right? Like if you think about, hey, you have a core experience, core product, there are features, there are things that customers want and you're cranking the wheel. Like it happens, you know, you take Facebook, you take Google, you take Robinhood, there's enough optimization problems that those are games of inches. And if it is a game of inches, I basically try to delegate this as much as possible because you can actually learn. And any one step doesn't actually like kind of, it's not a, you know, huge detour, right? But there are things that are games of miles, meaning Mm -hmm. if you set out the direction wrong, you've like screwed it up for years. (laughs) And that of course never happens at all. (laughs) No, no one's ever heard of the concept of tech tech. Exactly, yeah. And I think the thing is um, there, the goal is to intentionally slow down and actually ask, spend a lot of time on why. Because it's uncomfortable. It's like the thing that feels like navel gazing. But 10 out of 10 times, I found that if you're embarking on something brand new, the more you can front load these questions, who are you building it for? Why do you think this problem is important? What's the outlier success look like? If it is ridiculously successful, does it matter? And the number of times the answer is like, actually, may not be, is is uh, is amazing. The only trap there is that sometimes it's we're awful at predicting hyperlinear outcomes. Like humans are very linear. So sometimes you your lack of imagination may show uh, for the team and say they can't think of an outlier success. But that also like forces people to say, anyway, that's the why. And then there's, of course, like the, the who. Um, I asked this question even before the what because... Whose neck is on the line? Like, is, are you a are you a pig? Who's the pig? Uh, <laughs> right? Like, the pig is what's the what's the saying that goes pig? The pig is committed, but the hen is involved yeah. in breakfast. Yeah, yeah. This is a long for the listener. This is a long analogy about agile development and how to make breakfast. And the pig is the bacon, and the the hen is the eggs. That's right. right? Thank you for yeah. <laughs> explaining this. But I do ask <laughs> who's the pig, and yeah. so then you know you you want that person to own the decision and kind of like come up with all the all the specific details that help make the decision. Then there's a when, which is often like people think of yes or no, but there's a big third option, which is not now, right? And this is actually like, I think I've found it in, even in my past life, the, I think tech product blockbusters are all mostly sequels, right? Like you never (laughs) get it right the first time. Like often, like it's a, timing is a huge, huge thing, right? I mean, I worked on products that were like well before their time. Uh, I worked on something that, like eventually turned into Google Assistant. But at that time, it was just the early mobile uh, years. Google Now? Yeah, exactly. And it became the foundation, but it took years because it, you know, the presence, the footprint of mobile devices and the fact that NLP and speech recognition didn't didn't get there fast enough. So there is the yes, no, and uh, not now. And then the last thing I look at is like, what else? This is a trap. Typically, like people come in with a particular problem frame and force them to say, if we were not doing this, what else would we be doing? What's the opportunity cost? So as you can tell, this is not a like an easy, neat process with me. Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's the other thing. Decision making in real life versus in TV, on TV, it's, it's messy and it's kind of nonlinear, but that's what you need to make right yeah. decisions. This is why I ask this question every time. I think everyone's approach is different. And then the kind of practical application of the approach is always the same, which is, yeah, this is really hard, actually. And there's there's not one way of going about it. So I, I want to talk about how you use that framework for various things. And I absolutely want to talk about crypto and the card. But one of the things that is most fascinating about Robinhood is that when I look at kind of the array of companies that want to revolutionize finance, they're mostly either like all crypto or they're all traditional finance. Robinhood cuts across both. The traditional finance part seems really hard to me. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on it. 
when you have an app like Robinhood and you're like, okay, retail investors are going to show up, download an app from the app store. It's easy to use. You're going to push a button and execute a trade. What does the back end of that look like for you? How do you go about building that? Who do you talk to? Where does that trade get executed? How does that work? And how much of your time do you spend making that better? It's a good question. I think, I mean, there's like the, um, again, like the analogy I sometimes think of is like the Google search, right? Like the interface is simple. It's a search box. Anyone can type. And then be under the hood, there's like indexing, there's crawling, there's ranking. There's a whole bunch of like machinery that needs to go, go into it. It's something similar. If you look at a life of a trade, there's of course kind of the easy interface, but under the hood, there's a few things happening, right? First of all, you need to kind of make sure that you've interpreted the trade, whether it's a, there's parameters there, limit order versus market, a whole bunch of things. And then, of course, there's co more complex things when you come to things like options. And then there's within the walls of Robinhood, there's actually like a trading platform that we've built over the years. And then the, the next set of things that happen is kind of the clearing platform. Think about this as the like it's it balances out the buy and the sell and kind of makes sure that we have a we have a net order that we can actually then go to the market makers and say hey here's the set of uh, retail order flows here and then you have counterparties that kind of like actually match the order and then the trade gets executed one of the things at least that i didn't appreciate uh, before coming in is of course the the number of like steps in the value chain here and the kind of the execution chain but also kind of the non-real-timeness of it all. Like in tech, you're used to kind of saying, oh yeah, I post this thing and it shows up on Instagram. And I think in this, this whole settlement process being two days is I think one of the things that kind of like actually introduces like buffers in places that have uh, that have all sorts of implications. And so one thing like Vlad actually educated me, that my CEO, is that actually this whole thing about like we should be pushing from T plus two, he actually made it like did a tweet storm around this. And now SEC is actually looking at this, which is how can you like compress the settlement process so that you don't have to hold as much of a buffer in case the settlement kind of like goes in a different direction than you expect. But I'd say like my time, truth be told, uh, a lot of my time goes into two areas. One is the business that we have, an existing set of products. How can you make them better? And how can you get more and more of the retail investors starting and growing with us, right? That's the other thing. Like you get started, but how do you actually like increasingly control more and more of your financial freedom? And then the second area is the one minus investing, right? So yes, like investing is a great place to start for say 20 million people, 30 million people, but there are 100 million people who can today who are have no line of sight to investing. How do you help them? When I talk to crypto folks, a lot of the impetus for what they're building is the existing payment rails, the existing financial institutions are old and broken. They all run on COBOL code. We don't want to deal with it. We're just going to remake the financial system with modern code and crypto. Do you see that as a problem, right? Are, are there open APIs for clearinghouses? Is it built on a addressable tech stack that you can replace, or is it all kind of tied into the existing infrastructure in a way that's inextricable? You know, it's interesting. We actually, I mean, the company built as a, like it relied on external partners and they built the own self-clearing system. So it can be done. I would think of it in three different buckets, right? There's the like Fortran COBOL, like didn't change since the 90s, like banks, financial services companies. Then I think FinTech, Right. Like folks have actually been like mobile first, thinking about the interface, thinking about like the customer outside in and then looking at more of the building blocks Lego up approach to at least like more and more parts of the financial system. And then there is like kind of the rethink everything, rewrite everything like DeFi as an alternative, like parallel to the TradFi system. <laughs> so where do you fit? Are you TradFi? Are you DeFi? How does this work? The thing I, I'm most excited about is that we can be a bridge, right? We are a fundamentally a technology and product company that helps solve customers' financial problems. Now, like it has to be based on use cases. It has to be based on what are the specific problems that can be made 10x better. That's the approach we took with trading and investing, which is why are there commissions? Or like, why is this so hard? Why is this like, you know, buying a stock like a Rube Goldberg machine? And like, what's the mo mobile first experience? 
I think rooted in those use cases, there are specific areas where crypto can really help rebuild some of these experiences, right? People talk about this, these are, these are not new, but like doing them right will take time. And doing them right includes like doing them safely, right? Safe, affordable, and intuitive, like cross-border payments, for example. Or in some sense, there's every leg of the chain, there's like, there's an inefficiency built in. And how do you kind of compress that? So those are areas that we're absolutely interested in. Like how do you actually bridge between what we think of as the traditional finance to uh, DeFi and and crypto? You mentioned no commissions. This brings me to payment for order flow, which is how Robinhood makes money. Can you just quickly explain to people what payment for order flow is? Yeah. I If you think about this, this is a, the notion is no different from like if you buy something from a retailer and then the retailer buys from a wholesaler, the customer gets a benefit of like, let's say in 90 cents, we take a small percentage of that benefit when we are able to kind of like say, okay, we take 10 cents of it. Let's say we, we save you $1, 90 cents of it goes to the customer, 10 cents of it goes to Robinhood. Like I'm giving obviously like uh, numbers just as a symbolic yeah. thing. Payment for order flow is not new, but what is new is I think, uh, and that's, that's what Robinhood pioneered is commission-free. Previously, it was extraordinarily difficult for people to say, well, I'll just like buy this stock because I believe in it because of two reasons. Well, three, actually. One is that every trade, if you're charged $10 or $35, it's expensive for most people. The other reason is that, for example, like take a, take a stock that is $3,000 or $4,000. Most people, like they may believe in the company, but they can't afford to buy parts of it. So that's why what we did with Frax, like fractional shares, and then the third is actually the intuitive experience. It's a bit underrated as a thing, but the number of people, like I saw it in Google too, like it's not so much that it's um, it's just for young people. It's for folks who've never had a laptop, who just like, you know, this is the primary computing device that they have. So building something that's intuitive and easy to navigate is a big plus. I, the reason I'm focused on it is you've talked a lot about the product and democratizing the product and making the product easy to use, initiating a new set of investors, if I had a criticism of the existing big tech companies, Facebook, Google, what have you, it's that their products do not communicate the business models to the users. And particularly for Facebook and Google, the advertising-based big tech companies, the disconnect between the user experience and where the money is leads to conspiracy theories. It leads to all kinds of weirdness. It leads to misalignment between what's good for Facebook and what's good for users. It leads to people believing that Facebook is listening to them. I don't. When I look at Robinhood, I don't know that the way the company is making money is by collating a bunch of trades, selling them to a clearinghouse, and giving them data about where the retail investors are going. Right? It's that's relatively opaque in the product. Do you think that needs to be more transparent? That the way that the commission is zero is by effectively letting another organization have access to that kind of mass data for order flow. It is not access to data. It is not, we don't give any aggregate any access to data to the market mm-hmm. makers. Uh, in fact, actually, one of the things that's interesting is that we commissioned a study by MIT professors and said, "Hey, like, does this actually help customers?" And it turns out, like, over the last two years alone, we had eight billion dollars in price execution, uh, like just like price improvements and from um, payment fraud or flow and just the, and commission free. I think the analogies that's why are imperfect. Because I think it's nothing like the big tech. I think in this case, we are saying to be able to like participate, you you have zero fees, and then you get discounts. You get actually like money back to you because you're not paying for the commission. Out of which we charge a tiny amount of money, and we it, it is not taking it from the customers. That's the big point here. Stepping back, I think the one of the questions uh, that we do obviously think about is like, hey, how do we also have like other businesses that that are more diversified too, right? And that's why I think like one of the areas we are excited about is this. I mean, for example, we have a subscription business where we say you can have much better margin rates. You can have like mm-hmm. instant uh, withdrawals called Robinhood Gold. It's small, but like it's growing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the important tasks for any investment platform, especially one that's trying to initiate people new to investing is to educate that class of consumer. And I think Robinhood has some education in the app already, some safeguards in the app already. I'm just wondering, like, 
dead ahead, do you think that explaining how the business model of Robinhood works to users is important? And are there ways you can bring that into the app? Yeah, I, I think one of the areas that we have been focused on is like news and learning and like just like this idea of uh, being able to, you know, have familiarity with what you're looking at. Like simple things like PE ratio or just looking at the mm-hmm. chart and saying, what is this? We have a dedicated team focused on it. And we've actually, one of the things we found is that, of course, we have like learn.robinhood.com, lots of articles. But I think the most interesting thing has been actually doing product work to do these things in situ and in context and proportional to where people are in their journey. For example, like if you're starting out, like we see that, hey, you haven't like made a trade, but you're actually kind of trying to like feel your way through it. And then we'll actually show you more of the educational content around like proportional to again, where you are in the journey. And that's actually been like, this is, these are like, you know, products and features that we've shipped in the last few months. And I am seeing that it both quantitatively, but I think qualitatively, when we do customer research, they really like it. You know, it's the barrier that you think of. There's economic barriers, obviously. There's, I think, experience barriers, right? Like you don't know how to do it. And I think there's the emotional barrier. Like for a lot of people, this just feels like a black box and they're intimidated. And so when you explain this in like very intuitive, normal layman terms, it actually turns out it works. It helps people. I mean, this is like the classic software conundrum. You're going to initiate a bunch of new users. You're going to make them use a the product. They're going to get really good at using the product. And then they're going to want features for them. Well, you're still in the business of initiating new users and teaching them how to use a product. Have you experienced that split anywhere? It's interesting. There are definitely some specific features that probably the really advanced power users demand in a, in, with an intensity that like, say, like early investors or first time investors don't. You know, one of my colleagues puts it well, it's like, you know, if you're on a pavement, if you're if you're walking, you see some like, you know, a few cracks in the pavement. But if you're running, you just see them faster. Right. So if you have somebody who is using the product a lot, they're just like calling out the things that are, that are actually broken even for probably or, or can be improved for even for like early and first time investors. So, for example, like making the charts and making kind of like the, the product much more intuitive. Every single time there's improvement there, it's like lifted all boats. Everybody else like appreciates it, too. But I think we have to do both. Like, look, that is no different from any consumer product like you like you rightly pointed out. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, Uprana has some news that she's going to share with us. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. 
Thank you for answering all of my foundational decoder questions first. But part of the reason you're here is because Robinhood has some news. Today, as people are listening to this, uh, you're announcing a cash card. Tell us about that. Yes, we are announcing Robinhood cash card. It's a debit card and a spending account. And what it does is actually three things. One, you go about swiping your card or using it anywhere you go. It helps you round up the spare change that you can invest in crypto, in stocks, in, you know, or in cash, right? So that's one thing. The second thing is, and this is interesting because we, we said, how can we reward you for investing in yourself? So what we do is say, let's say you, you, you round it up like, I don't know, a dollar, right? And we say, we'll match from 10% to 100% of that roundup. So like we are matching and we are, we're kind of like giving you a bonus in addition to that. And so that that incentivizes folks to say, do the good thing more, right? Again, like that can be invested in cash, invested in crypto, invested in stocks, invested in like index funds and so on. And then the third thing over the next few months, what we are going to do is um, make sure that you can have additional rewards, additional cash back from say merchants, right? You know, you shop at your favorite store. Can you get cash back for doing that? The third thing may seem like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like I've heard this before, but I think what's interesting and like kind of, I feel really passionate about it because right now, like, I don't know if you see this, but every one of us is like, the prices are on rise. Inflation is, is getting real and real. And I think this idea of like, how can you ease the pain both today and tomorrow, right? I think that's the that's the goal here with the Robinhood cash card. Of course, like help you get some cash back, some rewards back, both from merchants and from us, but also like put, help you put that money towards investing. Because right now, like most of these people, they, most of us, like we're so busy kind of caught up in the spending. How can you turn that spending into investing is the prompt that started us on, on this journey. So cash card, very tradfi idea, right? I mean, you've, I'm assuming you have to be connected to various payment processors in those networks. How does that work? Is that we want to start this thing, we're going to call Visa and MasterCard and whoever and use their APIs and just be off to the races and then build our own systems? What's the process there? Um, some parts of the system we have had to build, but there are exi- great partnerships with companies like Visa and companies like MasterCard and figure out like, you know, what are the parts that they do well and just rely on their expertise as well in, in terms of payment processing and so on. I think what's interesting here is we are kind of like, as you're probably like noting, we're bridging the TradFi DeFi link here, which is a couple different ways. Like actually in, this, in the spending account, if you have your paycheck, you can split your paycheck. You can actually like kind of say, look, I think there's something interesting in terms of like crypto. I believe in some parts of it. I'm not going to like spend all day, all night kind of like deeply embedded in like Reddit and Discord learning all about like crypto. But if is there a way that I can kind of participate in this emerging ecosystem in a very, very small way, like in a way that I can afford? This is the same notion before, do It was like I, in, internally I say saying, you know, you can get started for as little as $1, but now we're saying get started with as little as $0, right? Uh, as you you go about your business and then like start to kind of like uh, put some money away for future. So this is, you've got your paycheck, you give it to Robinhood, then you go out and spend some money, you spend $1.97, three cents is going to go towards crypto. Then we'll throw an additional bonus and that can be like a anywhere between 10% to 100% of the, of the roundup. Is that an algorithm that decides that? It's is a that, variable reward algorithm. Is, do you have like a, just a knob in your office where you can turn the reward to 100%? Like how, how does the rate get set? I think the, the, the idea here is to say, to, I mean, by the way, this is, we're starting with this because the customer research has been like really, really positive when they feel like we are in, the, in there with them versus like if these, all these other card uh, products that they have where they have to pay to get these rewards, like they have to pay a monthly fee. Here we're saying no hidden fees, no ATM fees, no overdraft fees. So I think we're going to launch and learn here uh, exactly what works and what doesn't. But that's the kind of the initial thing that we're starting with saying, you do the right for yourself, we'll pitch in. Yeah. I must, the connection to investing here is basically that you're going to take the round offs and add the bonus and automatically invest for people. 
Yeah. And they can choose too. That's the beauty of it, which is, you know, if you believe in like a specific stock, that plus the combination of everything that works, which is like the fractional shares, no commission, that's what makes it really interesting for folks to do that on Robinhood. Yeah. There's an infinite amount of credit cards. Like this is maybe the most competitive market, which is a crazy thing to say, but I mean, an infinite variety of credit cards such that there's now, you know, a secondary ecosystem of businesses that just recommend credit cards to people. How are you going to compete in that extraordinarily crowded market? My first observation is that a lot of these uh, credit cards are like, whether they, they're intentional or not, predatory, right? So they're kind of like the loan rates, et cetera. But what is interesting, and the reason we actually focused on a debit card is that often all these rewards and like perks and points are reserved for credit cards. And people who, who are debit primary, which by the way is like increasing by the year, a lot more younger folks are debit primary. First of all, either because their credit score is not built up or uh, the credit card companies, they see how kind of like they can get bogged down and they want to be more in control of their cash flows. There's more and more of America that's debit primary. So I think we, and we said, why shouldn't the debit card or a cash card have the same kind of rewards? And on top of it, actually put a line of sight to investing, which none of these products today enable you to do. So the idea here is you want people to use your debit cards more. You're going to hold their cash for them. Do you have any obligations when you hold their cash to be a, like more of a bank in that regard? No, I think this is why it is a it is a cash card in the sense that we have the standard insurance there, but this is not a bank, right? What we are trying to enable the customers to do is actually be able to spend the way they do, right? It's a spending account. And on top of it, yeah, of course you can like divert some of your spending account into like some of these investing potential investing areas. But the idea, again, is that like with the spending account, with the cash card, you don't really have to change your behavior. Like, because, again, like people have their set ways. They know where they shop. They know what they need. Let me just push you on this. So you think that there's going to be some set of users that direct deposit their entire paycheck to you, send some of it to investment, and then spend the rest on a debit card? We already have people who do uh, direct deposit. We have a cash management license. We have state licenses in most um, most sta- states, and we're working on the rest. And the idea here again is to have the licenses that uh, that are it's a money trans it's called a money transfer li- license. It's the same thing that like a classic cash card plus a spending account would have. Okay, I would just say it, it, you operate in such a deeply regulated space, right? At some point, someone's gonna be like, "That sounds an awful lot like a bank with a checking account," right? And ask you why you don't have to follow those regulations. We work very, very closely with regulators. We wouldn't launch anything without like kind of working (laughs) closely with them. You have competitors who just YOLO products out without talking to regulators. You're saying that this is, you had the conversations. As the head of product, do you ever, are there there things you want to launch that you can't because regulators won't let you? You know, I think I would reframe this more and say like in some of these areas, the regulations are very clear. Right. So I think like the bright red lines are clear and like, you know, actually the goals are common, like customer protection, like access to more financial inclusion, which, you know, the regulatory bodies also want. So and education, we're actually like, you know, we've had many conversations with regulators where they see how we've done this in product and they're actually like, that's how it should be done. Right. Because it's not like sending them away to like this, you know, like boring seminar and lecture. So I think there are many, many things where actually things are super aligned. There are cases where we're all trying to figure out like what the regulation and the, what's the product space, how that evolves. Like a crypto is a good example where we, it's, 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 we have to do it together, right? And that, that, that's the way it has to be. We're talking about people's money. And like for me, it's very clear. This is like a really important space where we want to kind of make sure that anything we do is safe, compliant, and has customer benefit. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the bridge between traditional finance and decentralized finance. This card seems like it's right on the bridge. Let's go all the way to crypto for a second. A lot of Robinhood executives out, they say Robinhood wants to be a crypto first company when they give interviews. It's a big part of the international expansion strategy, presumably because crypto is easier to move than regular money as you expand internationally. How are you thinking about Okay, we're the bridge. Do you think crypto is one day the entire future and the bridge is over? 
do you think that you know the dollar has a future? I mean, you're this product will shape the future of both of these things. How are you thinking about that long-term future? First of all, I'm thinking a lot about this, like the, yeah. a number of hours. And like, you know, look, look, as things go, this is probably one of the most fascinating, interesting problems to be like, you know, like my the product and computer scientist in me is like like a pig rolling in the mud. Honestly, <laughs> like I mean, just think about the problems we are looking at, right? So on one hand, it's the consumer experience and the customer exp- experience that you want to th- think about, and on the other hand, it's this like finance and culture intersection. Like as cheesy as it sounds, that like I think crypto is more as much a cr- cultural phenomenon as as it is a technical and a financial phenomenon. And then there's a third thing around what parts of it like have the sound of click and what parts are kind of like they can be done today and you're kind of like you know standing on your head to just to, just to say hey like some other new technology for the technology's sake and this reminds me and now I'm dating myself Anila is like you know I, like I spent a bunch of time like you know early 90s late 90s in like I don't know dial up <laughs> dial up yeah. and like modem and uh, dropped out of a PhD in computer science in late 90s because everybody was joining a like a dot-com startup I mean I remember the other day I was trying to explain to somebody that yeah yeah before Netscape there was this browser called Lynx it was a command line browser it was a text browser you had to oh, yeah. tab that was my first email in college was links. And like yeah. you tap that and then you go like render a page, HTML, blah, nothing, right? So I think this, for me, like just by analogy, like I feel like this whole space is in that era, like pre-browser, pre-Netscape, right? And what does that mean? I think there's a lot of general undifferentiated ex- enthusiasm. If I can get a bit spicy, I do think that there's a lot of undifferentiated enthusiasm <laughs> around around this. I love that you think the phrase undifferentiated enthusiasm is spicy. It's great. You can get spicier. Go for it. And I think it comes from a very good place. I think there's like three groups of people, like as I see, some that are just like, they're believers, right? And I think they're kind of like, it's a self-fulfilling thing. In tech, at least, like the more a whole bunch of smart people actually go and say, this must be many of these things actually come to be. Like I've seen it with, you've seen it with open source, you've seen it with the web, you've seen it with like the entire internet for that matter. I think there's a second set of folks who are just like, like get off my lawn, right? (laughs) I feel very seen. Okay, that's fine. Now you're getting spicy. And then I think the bridge again, I think uh, like, and that's the space that at least I see myself and like the company is saying, Amidst all this enthusiasm, what fundamental invariance can you bet on, right? It's law of user physics. If it is much more easy to do something, that'll work out, right? Uh, If it's much more faster, speed always wins. So if you're sending money and it takes like a second versus like seven days, the water will flow there, right? The energy will flow there. And then there's like the third thing around, well, how do you kind of like make sure that you have a, you know, again, in the uncertainty that we are facing at the the world level, you know, how does inflation, fiat currency, how do those things intersect? And like, is there an alternative that is more stabilizing for people? So that's where yield and savings come. And that's where I like to play, which is like, what are the real use cases and like, what do consumers really have? Uh, like, where, where, what problems do they want solved, right? And then, of course, yeah, there's like certain tech things that like blockchain will solve better, and certain things that you know the scaling will happen, and then the right things will happen, and certain other things where there's other ways to solve these problems. No, I think that's exactly right. That's basically how I think about it. I'm skeptical, but it, I want to make sure it's an honest skepticism and. I can see some things that are exciting, and I can certainly see the enthusiasm. Fundamentally, I have to say, I'm a crypto-optimist, if that's a word. I like, I yeah. bet on tech optimism, and I think like even in the cases that where folks are like, oh, well, right-click and save, I think NFTs, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, the bathwater may very well be like some specific JPEGs or, or what have you, or <laughs> spe- so, like rug pulling that's happening. But I think yeah. the baby here is like this proof of access, you know, proof of engagement, proof of ownership, to both digital assets that matter, like access to events, access to things that you otherwise can't prove, even real assets, right? Real life assets and like fractional parts of it, et cetera. There's like, there's a lot there. 
whenever we do an episode about crypto or whenever we cover crypto on the verge, we do hear from the second group that just wants it to go away. Their number one criticism, and I think it is real and valid, is that the climate impacts of crypto outweigh any benefits that anyone can see. You're in charge of a platform. I think you're on your way to 500,000 wallets. Soon it'll be millions of wallets. You have some responsibility to this impact. How are you thinking about adjusting the product to mitigate the climate impact of crypto? My honest answer here is that I think it is not at the crypto level. It is at actually at like specific coins and specific tech. I think if you look at like even within between like Bitcoin and other alternatives, there's a difference. We are constantly talking to like our crypto leads and like myself, Vlad, the CEO, we are actively talking to other folks. Like this is an emerging area, right? And we want to make sure that we understand uh, the implications of it and the long-term steady state implications, meaning that right now there may be a short-term window where it does probably, there are certain certain approaches or certain uh, coins or certain tokens that do have that, that um, downside. But I think there's a lot of work going into figuring out the long-term implications. And meanwhile, don't underestimate the amount of work that's going in in the crypto community to actually solve precisely that problem. So we want to do our part to do that and then actually then say, okay, like what are ways that we can like adjust the product? The last thing I want to do is actually like tweak the product in a way that has unintended like negative consequences uh, for the long term. No, but well, sure, I buy that. But have you dedicated any of your product resources to that work in the crypto community to make it more efficient? We are starting to. And I think this is one where instead of like each of these companies trying to do this in their own silos, I think it has to, crypto fundamentally is like, is such an open community. And like, there's a lot of pieces that are out in, you know, developed in the public. Our thinking right now is it's much better to kind of like participate in that like broader effort and like pitch in. We're starting to do that. I don't have anything specific that I can share yet, but it's on our minds, right? Like I, I, I think what you should hear is, if we are ushering in kind of this new approach, we want to learn from like previous sets of like technology and platform shifts and say, how can we actually like do that better? Every time I have this conversation, someone else will pop up and say, well, soon Ethereum will move to proof of stake and it'll be fine. I don't know when that's going to happen. Do you know when that's going to happen? Trying to say something that's... Um, I think one realistic answer is never, by the way. No, I, I I don't believe that. I actually do believe in like there's a, there's actually multiple efforts going on there. The computer science part of it is solvable. And I think like there's enough of a need for it. If you really want to kind of rethink parts of the traditional financial system, the, we will have to accelerate that. Well, the reason I was pausing on it and like kind of um, thinking aloud was I think there's also like a pull that will happen with one or two of these really important use cases. That's actually often how the scaling happens in the internet world and in the tech world. Like you'll have this like amazing use case that just like is crawling, right? And then you have a bunch of smart people start to kind of like say, okay, like how can we actually make this significantly faster so that it's usable? Right now, there's seven coins you can buy in Robinhood. I'm looking at the list. It is Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, which is very funny, Litecoin, Ethereum Classic, Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin SV. How do you decide on those seven, and how do you think about expanding? We have a very well-formed asset listing framework that we use. And we've looked at, first of all, it's really important that like all of these are safe and um, are things that customers want. Right. And so that's been kind of our like guiding principle. And is it something that we can provide on the on the platform, you know, with ease of use? You said earlier people had undifferentiated optimism. I would delineate that, right? There's the cryptocurrency world and there's the web three world, which is where you get the blockchain will solve everything or tokens in some way will solve everything. Do you think Robinhood is part of Web3? I don't know uh, the nomin- I mean, like this whole Web One, Web Two, Web Three thing uh, is a little bit like post hoc. Uh, I mean, even Web Two was like I remember living through those times, and like <laughs> Web Two was a little bit of a post hoc like recognition of the fact that oh, Ajax was used, and like you know, like <laughs> Flickr. Remember those uh, those years? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I remember uh, this guy who did the mashup of like 
you know, Craigslist and Google Maps. And like that was like the housing maps thing. And like to me, I think um, without shitting on any of those uh, like different conversations, <laughs> I think what I would say is to me, I think cryptocurrency as an asset class makes a lot of sense. Right. Like if I look at like Robinhood and it's like aperture is more around like financial services, helping people with like their financial lives, helping give them access to more of like investing, give them access to like better spending. For me, I think cryptocurrency is like, yes, it's a strong asset class. And the second thing that's really interesting is this idea of embedded crypto. Right. Like do the things that you need to do. But if crypto can can make them significantly better, like whether it's sending payments, whether it's um, spending money and, in, you know, kind of uh, in more efficient ways, getting more yield on your savings. That's kind of like the aperture that uh, at least like we're yeah. putting on for Robinhood, which is cryptocurrency as an asset class as a financial uh, as a as an investing company and then embedded crypto to kind of like rethink and help people if there's a 10x right in terms of like how they do things do you think about nfts in robinhood or are you just focused on the currencies oh absolutely think about nfts and i've been like you know uh, fascinated by them. And like, I think that the crypto team is excited. Um, look, we're always like kind of looking at what, what makes sense here in terms of like products to offer through Robinhood. But absolutely. I think there's like a lot of like potential in the use of like NFTs. Now, some of these are like far reaching. I mean, there's like two levels of indirection from the core business of Robinhood, like things that are happening with in-game for ex- NFTs and yeah. like what Axie is doing, et cetera. Uh, but it's, I mean, I think it kind of like affects the entire entire space. Well, the reason I ask about NFTs in particular is when you think about products on smartphones that allow you to transact, where you push a button and spend some money and then digital goods move around, Robinhood is actually very unique in that it does not pay a 30% commission to either of the smartphone platforms, even if you're buying Bitcoin, which is a digital good because it's money. Right, which is like a very philosophical, right? Like you're dancing on the head of a pin there that Apple has not said, I want 30%. By that token, all of, um, I mean, like you could cast everything as. Uh, oh, I, I'm pretty sure Tim Cook thinks about that every day that he could take 30% off of every button on his phone. When you get to NFTs, right? Now they represent, I don't know, outfits and games or JPEGs or whatever it is. And you could see both app platforms saying that's the same as a Kindle book or whatever it is. We want 30%. Do you think about that? Are you, as you explore NFTs, as you explore expanding the range of digital goods in the app? I think the the, the thing that's it is interesting about NFTs is that it's a, like, I think right now it's an end in itself in some cases, but I think the really fascinating opportunity is how is it a means to an end? And like, so it's access for example, it's being able to like, like a portable identity that you can carry around. Like say if you're moving from like one product to another or one game to another and so on. I think it's it's going to be less and less like specific as a as a purchase. At least that's my like personal opinion, by the way. Um, but I think as a, as a team and a company, absolutely, we're like looking at the space and saying, how can we like best participate? But also how, like what are the customer problems that we can solve? Yeah. Do you run into app store policy issues every time you ship an update? We just had Matt Mullenweg from Automatic, and he's like, every time we ship an update to the Tumblr app, we like cross our fingers and hold our breath to see what Apple's going to do. Matt is uh, doing Tumblr now? Yeah, Automatic bought Tumblr. Like, yeah, like they bought this on like, 2019. I guess I, I missed I, You got to listen to Decoder is what you got to do. <laughs> That's uh, true. But right, do you, do you run into the same? Does Apple look very closely at what you're doing? No, I think we we obviously like we are multi-platform. We work on iOS, work on Android. Can't say that we do. Yeah. Do you ever call your like Google contacts and be like, let this one through? Never. <laughs> I'm gonna note that Upperness smiled a lot. We need to take another break, but when we come back, we're gonna have a little lightning round. When you need 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. I have a tiny little bit of a lightning round for you, and then we can wrap this up. The first question is about crypto, though. Robinhood is all about investing. It's all about helping people build wealth, giving them access to markets. Crypto is extraordinarily volatile. How do you think about protecting people from the volatility of crypto? So I think that's actually, I mean, in general, like there are other volatile asset classes too. And I think that's one of the things where we are saying, look, first of all, access is the first step. I think the second is like agency. So that's where education comes in. And, you know, how do you kind of make sure that folks are not overreacting or underreacting based on like kind of the market conditions and so on. And then there's the third thing, which is how do you actually help them with new products that can help them toward the longer term, right? I mean, retirement is something that, you know, it's top of mind for me, the product, we talked about it even a few months ago that we're working on this. That's a great example where you're trying to extend the horizon of people's thinking. And that's really hard. Most people like, we're all kind of like here and now. And so how do you kind of help? And like, surprisingly, retirement is something where very few people, Americans actually have like retirement accounts open and even fewer have employer matches. So it's just like one of those things where you say, of course, you get access to investing, but how do you grow, right? That's the Mm -hmm. next step here, both with education, but also products that kind of extend the horizon in the long run. Every app on a phone, right? I talk to their heads of products. They want the apps to be stickier. They want people to use the apps more. Primarily what you use Robinhood to do is trade. Famously, the more you trade, the more likely it is that you'll lose money. How do you think about balancing that dynamic? I don't think of our our goal to be about like, you know, increasing or encouraging trading per se. I think we want access to investing. And that mean often starts with, you know, like if you ask anyone how they got started, it's like, oh yeah, my, you know, I just start, I first bought this ABC stock. So that's often the first step. And that gives you courage to kind of like an interest to kind of go go further. Uh, but we that is why I think like we have a product, for example, that ha- helps you do recurring investments, right? Like you drip, drip, drip. You kind of like start to kind of like, you know, almost dollar cost average into funds, into stocks, into crypto, et cetera. So I do feel like I think it's, um, it's a matter of like taking a long-term view and not like looking for things about like specific short-term engagement. There are lots of product features that do incentivize monetary behaviors like transactions. Do you have folks who think about what kinds of notifications you should send or do you do tests to make sure you're not incentivizing the wrong kind of behavior? Yeah, actually the the most recent feature that that the team ship that I'm really proud of is a notification around like, you know, price alerts, which actually has a really positive educational effect of saying, hey, like here's kind of like the things that are happening. These are the price movements that are happening. And then there are other educational features too, saying like, did you know X, Y, and Z happen in the market? We have a huge investment in a in a product called Snacks, called Robinhood Snacks. It's a newsletter. It's probably one of the biggest newsletters in in the U.S. Has more opens than most of the like um, u- usual newsletters. And uh, with Snacks, for example, we try to kind of in like very bite sized, mobile first way explain what's going on in the market, right? So that way, like it's it's yes, it's like we're pushing information, but information that kind of makes you more familiar with the market and like removes the intimidation. You recently acquired a company called Say that lets people ask questions during earnings calls. Now that's in the app. How do you moderate that? Every episode of Decoder ends on a content moderation question at the end. It's a it's a real theme for us. Say is a platform that works for Robinhood as a broker dealer, but other other brokers as well. I think this is one of the most amazing things that we can do in the space, which is connect the customers with the companies that they're investing in. This is, again, if you think about it, institutional investors, they get like, you know, the, the song and dance and like, you know, companies spend a bunch of time. They get to talk to the IR team. Retail shareholders, 
none of that, right? And so Say has launched this shareholder Q&A and we, we have the in-app Q&A that we have launched, like take Coinbase, take Tesla, we have, we have Q&A with all of these companies. And what's fascinating and like the thing that makes me really excited is the, um, the questions that people have. They're about the product roadmap. They're about corporate responsibility. They're about sustainability in a way that they just couldn't connect. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I always say your stocks go way longer, way further on Robinhood because it's it's not a, a trade. It's not a trade. It's a tra- not a trade, right? It's like this is these are the experiences. If you own stock on Robinhood, you can actually participate in this in-app Q&A and get a lot more questions answered. And that, yes, there's moderation in terms of like, you know, offensive comments and so on. But I think so far the idea, like we have a content moderation team, but I think what's been interesting is like most of the questions are really on point. Is that content moderation team built to scale, right? Like you've got a handful of companies, you can have a handful of moderators, you know when the Tesla earning call is going to be. If you scale that to every company on Robinhood, now you have a massive content moderation problem. We have around like 5,000 public companies uh, in the U.S. ballpark. And we have like a few earning calls, right? We think that we are build. I mean, we are building out the team to be able to like you know scale to that. Um, but obviously, that's something we'll watch. Okay. Last Latinarian question: How often do you yourself trade on Robinhood? I use obviously like parts of the product that I uh, think need testing. Um, <laughs> but I would say like the product that I'm most excited about recently has been the recurring investment where I can just basically say, hey, here's the amount of money. Here's like the stocks that I really would like to invest in or the crypto coins that I'd like to invest in. And, you know, like before you know it, you're like, oh, this is a good good deal <laughs> instead of like spending it all on the co- cup of coffee. That's great. Well, Aparna, thank you so much for all the time. Uh, this is really great. Thank you for being on Decoder. Thank you, Nilay. Thanks again to Aparna Chanapragada for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you really like it, hit us with that five-star review. By the way, if you tweet the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.